Hi, and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations about issues emanating from psychiatry that impact society, as well as discuss societal issues that have potential implications for mental health and emotional well-being. My guests include thought leaders from both within the discipline of psychiatry and beyond. Beyond Madness is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. Adverse childhood experiences are increasingly understood to play a significant role in the development of a range of not only psychiatric but also non-psychiatric conditions. Early life experiences matter. For each individual, these experiences shape development and influence the path one takes to adult life. Unfortunately, adverse experiences such as sexual and physical abuse as well as neglect occur frequently in childhood. On today's episode, simply entitled Childhood Sexual Abuse, we'll be focusing on one such adverse experience, although I suspect they all go hand in hand. Our guests today are Luke Lamprecht and Edith Creel, and both have extensive and impressive credentials. Luke has three decades of experience working in the nonprofit and child protection sector, He's a thought leader on child protection and development and a regular guest on radio and television, and his views and opinions are sought after in print media too. He has involvements with various organizations, notably Women and Children Against Abuse, where he's the advocacy manager, the Johannesburg Child Advocacy Forum, where he's the convener, and the South African Male Survivors of Sexual Abuse, where he is a consultant. Edit is the executive director of Jelly Beans, an organization that provides individual and group therapy to children who suffered trauma and abuse amongst various other services which they offer. She's a social worker who's specialized in working with traumatized children for over 20 years. She developed the healing project for children that have been sexually abused and co-authored the book Voices of Hope, Healing Stories for Africa's Children. So Luke and Edit, welcome and thanks for taking the time to join us today. I know that you folk know each other from the teddy bear clinic here in Johannesburg. So uh, a coming together mm. of like minds. Mm. So I want to start out by saying that the word trauma mm. is, a, is a word that's frequently used. And I, and, and I think, as is often the case, overuse leads to dilution of meaning. But I certainly think that the adverse childhood experiences certainly qualify to be understood as traumas. And in my reading about trauma, I've, and I've kind of reduced it or simplified it to what happens that shouldn't sexual, physical abuse, what doesn't happen that should potentially neglect. But in doing so, I'm aware that such experiences can be highly subjective. And yet, if that was a person's experience of an event or events, and there are consequences, and one has to view them within the context of the individual. So let's turn our attention to sexual abuse. And currently, here in South Africa, the media has been reporting on Gerard Ackerman, who has been on trial facing 740 charges, which include rape, and sexual grooming of minors, in this instance, teenage boys. And this is part of a child sex abuse ring. And uh, in leading up to judgment, the judge had said that whilst Ackerman tried to portray himself as a gentle lamb, he was indeed a devious predator. And in fact, he has been found guilty. So even in that brief intro, there's so much to discuss in, 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 in what I've described just about Gerard Ackerman. So the first question, and I'll throw it open to either Luke or, or Editor, hopefully both will jump in. What constitutes sexual abuse? Luke? All right. So the, the big thing for us around sexual abuse is that there are, there are broadly three categories. Right. 
So firstly, there's the category of non-contact sexual abuse. There were many charges. For example, you mentioned the Ackerman case. These are uh, forcing children to uh, have sex with each other, videoing it, photographing, distributing images, forcing them to watch images. So there the adult is is not actually touching the child in a sexual way, but is sexualizing the child through a variety of either images or compelling them to do things with one another, which are then recorded. Then you have contact sexual abuse. And contact sexual abuse in the world is largely two things. So there's sexual violation or assault, which is without penetration. And then there is rape, which is with penetration. And then in the world, you also get non-contact sexual abuse, which is things like voyeurism, exhibitionism, etc. Now, the the important concept to think through is that the children cannot and do not consent. Now, developmentally, the laws attempted to draw certain lines. So, for example, from uh, our old sort of common law, a child under the age of the uh, under the age of twelve cannot consent at all. Right. So, regardless of what the child says, I mean, whether they do or don't consent, the law says you can't consent. Then, over sixteen, a child can consent to pretty much any kind of sex, but there are exceptions. And interestingly, the Ackerman case was an exception. Yes. Because Ackerman argued some of the boys were 16 and gave consent, but the judge still found him guilty of uh, trafficking, um, living off the proceeds of the of child pornography and prostitution, etc. Because you, you can't use a child's previous vulnerability for your own enrichment. Right. Okay. So it, it was an interesting thing where it, and I believe it was a good test of the, um, the law because the element of consent was raised all the time. So there are times where vulnerable people also can't consent. Yes. Okay. And then between the ages of 12 and 15. The so law- hang on a sec. I want sure. to jump in there mm. because the, the issue of consent is critical because mm. if you take somebody who's intellectually impaired. Correct you will still be moving into the realms of sexual abuse, even though we're not dealing with childhood sexual abuse. Correct. You might have a, an adult of age above 16, but incapable of giving consent. And it's such a, it's a, that is such a vexed problem because yeah. the sexual offenses legislation is largely what I've told you. And between 12 and 15, if both consent, it's not an offense. Technically. But, but it doesn't mean you do nothing, but it's just you don't use the criminal justice system to intervene. You use therapeutic, health interventions. You don't criminalize the 12 to 15-year-old who have both consented. And that's a very interesting judgment to read because it was law and it was then removed, interestingly, by the teddy bear clinic and others versus the state. How do you determine consent okay. where you have somebody who's older yeah. and younger, yeah. but you were, you, you're within that five-year mm. gap, or mm. should I say range, mm-hmm. and so suddenly it's, well – this doesn't apply. Mm. And yet, don't tell me that a 15-year-old boy can't impose and exploit a 12 or 11-year-old girl or mm. other boy for that mm. matter. And just because the age range is within those five years, therefore, it's therapeutic and not criminal. Correct. So the, the law did attempt to deal with that that level of complexity. Yeah. So children 12 to 15, if they both consent, that's a three-year gap. Yeah. If they both consent and they both say they consented, it is not an offense. Okay, it's not an offense. Again, therapeutic, health, etc. Yeah. The minute one becomes 16, the one younger than 16 cannot be more than two years younger than the 16 year old. Okay. So for example, 12 and 16 is an offense. But then again, 
you deal with the 16 in terms of the Child Justice Act rather than in terms of a punitive response as your first response. So they're protecting, interestingly, both sides where they're protecting the children who, in terms of diversions and they're protecting the, the child who's the victim. And then my final point is back to your comment on the, the intellectual impairment. And the, the reason I said it's vexed is because for every single um, offence, the sexual offence that is against a child, yeah. the exact same offence exists in terms of adults with intellectual impairment. Okay. But that's whether it's whether it's temporary or whether it's permanent. But the complexity is then do you infantilize all adults with cognitive impairments and deny them the right to sexual expression yes. if it is between people of a similar intellectual capacity. So it's an yeah. extremely vexed thing. And then really the the thing we want to, and, and I hope Edith will add on this component, is that a lot of sexual abuse of children is compound and complex because it exists within a relational context. Yes. In other words, it's, it, it is 99.9% of the time committed by someone in a position of power and care over the child, and it occurs over a period of time, resulting in some very complex things, to the extent that there's been authors that have actually written around the specific trauma of sexual assault in incest, and they're called the traumagenic states, and those right. are people like Finkel or Brown, James. So it's, it's its own whole trauma theory. So now these, just the last point before I get to edit in, these ages, do you regard them as almost arbitrary? Because at the end of the day, I mean, we're talking 16 versus 12 versus 14 versus two years versus three years. It gets very technical. And I mean, that, that, that creates all kinds of openings in terms of loopholes. And it doesn't really speak to intent and exploitativeness and vulnerability. They're just using an, an arbitrary number in a sense. I say arbitrary because we're making certain assumptions about developmental maturity at a certain age and, 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 and the preparedness and readiness to meaningfully consent. It is entirely arbitrary. Right. So, I mean, if you think about um, – so I'm a developmentalist by training. Right. You know, so that's what I studied. I mean, you get you put one 12-year-old next to another 12-year-old who went into puberty at 10 and one gain at 14. Yes. I mean, they're not even in the same bodies. Right. Um, who they are exposed to in terms of protective adults or education systems that have assisted them with the complexities of things like consent, which is stated and vocal and – uh, occurs step by step in a sexual process, etc. They've never heard of to the extent that, I mean, we've even had people in the country, freedom of religion, South Africa in particular, fighting saying we can't teach the comprehensive sexuality education program because we encourage sex, whereas we know that if you educate children about sex, they are able to make healthier decisions. Right. It promotes more responsible sexuality. So that's your home, your church, your community, your environment. You know, the, the level, the level of difference in child development across those phases heading up to and out of puberty is extraordinary. Yes. And I think that's really what I'm getting at is that I'm aware that there's such a range, such a diverse range of, of levels of maturity that using a number as a cutoff point in terms of age can be somewhat problematic. Actually. It, it, tru- it truly is the blunt instrument of the law, yeah. which is why it relies on people like us yeah. to almost say, look, this is what the law says, but you have to think in the context. And, and it, it holds true for the other, the other side as well in terms of the juvenile justice right. component, where never mind the consent component, did the person engaged in the 
in the act have the capacity yes. to understand the wrongfulness and act accordingly. Well, so that's the other side of the story. That's, that's important. And, and I think one of the issues that you're also raising is, is, is that this whole issue of diversion. Mm. Are we moving straight into criminal justice or are we moving into therapeutic? And I think that's an issue that will come up because you mentioned voyeurism and exhibitionism. Mm. I'm going to touch on pedophilia because that is in DSM-5. And the question there becomes, do you treat or do you punish? Correct. Edit, you've listened to us for a few minutes. What do you have to say? I think just in terms of the conversation around developmental issues and ages, what we're beginning to understand really is how we actually, the brain only develops by the age, fully develops by the age of 25. Right. So, you know, even us thinking of 18 as the age of majority and that you can make adult decisions, we are now beginning to understand is really you've, you're still seven years away from adult or, you know, understanding all of your decisions. So I think it's really important for us to have a look at each individual child, like Luke said, you know, and yes, the law does have certain cutoff points because at some point, you know, they, they have to have some kind of boundaries within to, which to work. But from a therapeutic point of view, we need to be having a look at that child and that family and what their needs are. And where they are developmentally, it doesn't matter that they're 14, as an example. We have to look at, um, you know, their past history. At what age did the abuse happen? Um, you know, what are the other adverse childhood experiences that they've experienced? So there's so many things that we need to keep in mind. I might have a 14-year-old um, person standing in front of me, but 14 and 14 are very different things. So I suppose the law does what it can in terms of attempting to create some kind of structure. And that's where then the professionals come in to give the nuance in terms of how that structure is interpreted. That's how I would understand things because we're saying you've got to judge each case on its merits. You have to look at the individuals and you have to say, well, there is a framework, but there's an individual. And so we need to have context. And I think for me, that's, that's absolutely critical. So if, if I may come in, yes, of course. In, term, in terms of the context is that unfortunately our criminal justice system is very, very under-resourced, right. which means that a lot of cases that should be having experts testifying in them in order to give context to the magistrate or judge yeah. who's making the rulings, there is no context. Okay. And so sometimes the behaviors of children or the way children are speaking or um, you know, is, is not seen in context because there's nobody to create that context, mm. um, for the presiding officer. So we've had cases, for instance, where a child has giggled while they've been testifying, a child of sort of 12, 13 giggled while testifying. And the magistrate saw that as, well, then clearly it couldn't have been abusive. Right. And, you know, so just, Contextualizing, I think, is really important. And unfortunately, there isn't a lot of that available currently in our system. And I think that's, that's a major failing because at the end of the day, I think what we're dealing with requires context. It's critical from everything we've said just in this opening sort of stanza of conversation. I mean, the, the, the complexities and the sort of layers that one has to look at, um, require actually a more nuanced understanding of exactly what's going on. Otherwise you say, well, there was a sexual act. These are the ages. You're either guilty or innocent. Boom, bang, cut and dried. I think the law prefers that in a way because it's black and white. I think we come into the equation and we start to introduce context. 
and maybe it kind of muddies the waters for them because they like to maybe operate in a much more cut and dried way. That's my impression. I could be wrong. So I wanted to move the conversation and edit. I'm going to come to you specifically because on the Jelly Beans homepage, it says one in three children is sexually abused before age 18. And I just want to come to that because that sounds like quite a figure, actually. So I wanted to look at age and gender as two aspects in terms of, 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 of prevalence. And the second fact that I extracted from the homepage, and, and I think there's a, a theme that will come through in quite a few of my episodes. One in every 10 high school learners in Gauteng, that's the province of Gauteng, views pornography. And I'm wondering what the link is, but this is now another aspect of the conversation. So let's just stick with prevalence because I've also come across the Optimus study, which was a very detailed study. It's the Optimus study on child abuse, violence, and neglect in South Africa, which comes out of the University of Cape Town's Children's Institute in 2015. And they were talking about one in five young people aged 15 to 17. So edit, coming back to the Jelly Beans homepage, one in three, your comments. So one in three is also part of the Optimus study, and it was looking at children across across the age from 0 to 18. Right. And um, or before the age of turning 18. And I think what I just want to also add, I mean, it's 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 really scary to to imagine one in three yes. children. But to add to that also, that out of those one in three children may be sexually abused more than once mm-hmm. and possibly by more than one person. Right. So we also need to keep in mind that that one in three is a lot bigger than just one in three. Yes. But that means that, you know, we, we really are dealing with, if I can use the word a pandemic, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we, we really are dealing with something that is unfortunately though very difficult to recognize and it is very often unseen. Um, mm. Something like, for example, you know, where you can see the injury, where yes. you can see the, the bleeding, you can pay attention to it. Right. But sexual abuse and also online sexual abuse, um, you, you can't see the bleed. And so how do you deal, how do you recognize so that I th- there's hurt? So I think what's very important here is we need to understand coming back to what Luke had said in terms of what sexual abuse is. Because I think that for most people, when you speak about sexual abuse, one thinks of penetrative sex. When in actual fact, sexual abuse, as we defined it earlier, is much broader. So we're sort of embedding that one in three in the broadest, you know, the broadest definition of what sexual abuse is, which then puts a slightly different picture on it because, you know, your sort of immediate response is, goodness, one in three children is being violated physically with penetrative sex, that just seems beyond the pale. But in fact, if we look at sexual abuse in terms of the broadest definition, I, I suspect that that's what we're talking about. Mm. Edit, would you concur or, or not? I think one would need to look at the details specifically yes. of the study okay. as to what, you know, what criteria they're used. Okay. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to minimize it. No, 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 no. Not at all. I'm just trying to as yes. fully contextualize it as possible to say, okay, it's one in three, under 18, sexual abuse. What is sexual abuse? Because I think that's really what, what's enough. important, you know. Fair, 
Fair enough. And, I, you know, I think that also just thinking around what is sexual abuse, I think a lot of times when it's been non-contact mm. sexual abuse, yes. as, as Luke was explaining earlier on, for some reason it seems to be seen as not as serious. Mm. Yeah. You know, it, it's not as traumatic or not as abusive. Uh, well, I, I, what I wanted to say then, I'm going to bring Luke in here, is that it's almost like a, a gateway mm. to other things. You know, we speak about gateway drugs. Here I'm talking about gateway behavior. They use the word grooming. I'm not sure if one would put that in that context, but to some extent. But you cannot diminish it because you don't know what it leads to beyond that. And so everything has to be taken seriously because of what it could potentially be. And never mind what it could potentially be, simply what it is. As I alluded to earlier, you've got to look at the incident and the individual. You've got to look at them and see, well, how did it impact that person ultimately? Luke? Okay. The contextualization is extremely important because if you look at the, the young people I see, yes. okay, so I see predominantly boys, obviously, because me, I, me myself, I'm a boy, yes. and I do see some girls, but I get a lot more male referrals just right. simply because there's not many males around. So, right. you know, just remember, I am a skewed lens. Okay. But what I am seeing without any hesitation that I can say is that the, the – the advent of the smartphone and unfettered access to large bandwidth. Yes. Okay. The, it has not made pornography accessible. It's made it inevitable. Now, the difficulty that that's that, a scary, I mean, that's a scary reality, but actually. it's true. No, 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 I get it. Now, the problem is this is you got the kind of old bro code, like, and I, I'm not being, I'm, I'm not being disrespectful of no, fathers no, no, no. because I myself am one. So it's not a, a, a disrespect. I think it's a lack of right. Ah, you know, you know, boys look at porn, it's what boys do, etc. Boys will be boys. Now, that's a very anti-male statement to start with. You know, yes. boys will be boys. You can Correct. expect more from us. But the second thing is, is what they don't recognize is when I was young, I mean, sitting here, you can see I'm in sort of my early 50s. <laughs> so when I was young, there was apartheid, there were sanctions. If there was one scope being handed around between 35 boys in a classroom, it was a lot. And never mind, came, never mind the playboy that got smuggled in through yeah, the through airport. Yeah, airport. I, I lived in the <laughs> south where no one traveling overseas, you know what I mean? So we, <laughs> so that, that, was, that was, that was in uh, the north of Joburg, the, yes. the, the important stuff. But anyway, the point is this. Is that what parents don't understand yeah. is that what is being seen online is absolutely abusing their children. Yeah. And the reason I want to point it out is not, I don't want to shock. I don't want to be sort of like one of those people who's one big trigger warning, but I can tell you categorically that boys, but boys entering puberty, when I'm generally seeing boys 11 to about, let's say 13, 14 yeah. in this category. They're trying to find out about sex and sexuality. They go onto a, a porn site and the rabbit hole has taken them to things that I see as crime scenes in sexual assault cases. Yes. I'm talking about people getting harmed, people getting killed. Yes. I'm talking about children, infants, etc. Now, what I see is they present to me with the identical symptoms yeah. of children who have been sexually abused. Right. So I think that it's really interesting that you mention that because in a previous episode, which dealt with uh, sexual health and psychiatry, I raised the issue of gonzo pornography with one of my guests. Now, gonzo pornography is a really hardcore pornography where there's really body damaging sexual intercourse taking place. And this is online. It's accessible, available. And the age at which this is first being accessed on average is 11 years old. 
I, w- I want to interject with a different statistic. Yeah. Okay, even more scary one. So under COVID, which has caused a lot of this problem, right? Okay, and, and that that Gonzo one is terrible. But there's another stat that's come out now, a British study, right? That self-generated sexual images, right, have increased by a thousand one hundred percent. So in other words. Images taken by children of themselves so and put online. Right. The age range is seven to ten. Sure, that is young. Self-generated, right. so not being exposed to, being requested of. So where does that come from? Because at the end of the day, where does the idea come from to do that? And I wonder if online exposure wasn't the gateway to self-generated. It, it is. It is absolutely. You used. You said, "Is the term grooming correct?" The term grooming is exactly correct because yeah. it is. A, a, a lot of the young people that are brought to see me have been requested to send images. They've been catfished and they have been, they've, you know, the sock puppets have been used right. to lure them in right. to give these things, um, you know, over the internet, images, videos, etc. And behind that lies people. And I mean, one, we're dealing with a number of cases in Joburg at the moment where Someone present, presents themselves as a 14-year-old girl online. They request right. nudes of 15-year-old boys at the local schools. The boys send it. They then send back, not blackmailing them for money. So in other words, they're not saying give me 15,000 rand because yes. the kids don't have money. They're saying here's a list of what I want you to do. So I want these photos, these videos with uh-huh. these people, etc. And if you don't, I'm going to release the nudes you sent me. And the reason they're doing that is that is a menu of what they will sell online. So they're monetizing, ultimately, without taking cash up front? Objectifying and then monetizing, no doubt. So I think one of the issues that was being raised in the previous episode, because it was about sexual health, and this is about the distortion of what is healthy sex, actually, which young people are being exposed to, and this then becomes their norm of what sexual activity is all about. So, Edit, coming back to you, because obviously this discussion or this element of the discussion started with this exposure to pornography and the link. And I think Luke has kind of elaborated on that. Your comments? I think very, very sadly, pornography does normalize atypical sexual relationships. Mm -hmm. And, you know, stereotypes in lots of ways – in terms of gender, in terms of what relationships are, in terms of how sex works, et cetera, et cetera. But with the normalization, there comes this idea that what I'm seeing is not that bad or not that arousing or not that exciting. And so in order to feel just a little bit more excited, children then move on to something that is potentially more harmful or more sexually abusive. And, you know, we have young, young children who are becoming addicted to pornography, yep. hardcore pornography, um, you know, that I don't even think adults should be watching. Sure. Um, you know, but, but we, we, and this is normalized. And I do want to also bring in here the idea that this self-generated um, um, sexual images is also, we, we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that these are creepy old men sitting behind, you know, laptops with hoodies on. And, you know, it is also older children. It is their peers. Um, You know, it is a form of bullying as well by by other children. I'm not taking away from the fact that, you know, they very much are older people who are abusing children for monetary gain. But at the same time, we also shouldn't forget that because of this normalization 
um, you know, we, we can keep on upping the ante mm. and, and getting children to become more and more vulnerable. Well, I think that you get a level of desensitization. Exactly. And so what you're looking for is that uh, kick. People keep talking about dopamine, but it's mm. very real. And yeah. you want something novel. And so when you use the word addiction, I think mm-hmm. that, you know, although it's not in DSM-5, the only sort of non-substance uh, addiction in DSM-5 is gambling. Mm. Some people want to talk about sexual addiction. I think addiction to pornography is 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 really a, a – a, I think that's one that really is going to come to the fore because I think it's really robbing our youth – uh, not just our youth, but it's really got a very, very, very negative impact. The the thing is, is that we must, and as Edith is saying, the, the topic of older children is a massive one mm. because it's not just a desensitization, it's the provision of a script. So in other words, if you don't know what to do in terms of sex and sexuality, from whom does your script come? Right. Does it come from your rabbi or your priest or your imam or, you know, from the temple or your parents or whatever? Very seldom from any of the above. In fact, most of the time it comes from something you have seen or something a peer has showed you. Because, the, the, I mean, we're talking about the early exposure. I said somewhere between 7 and 10. Now, what we are seeing, so there was a stage post-COVID where I was getting probably a, a case a week, a case a month of 13 to 15, 16. In fact, I shared some, I share some of these cases with Edith, actually. I mean, she does stuff in Captain, I do it, yeah. Where older children are sexually assaulting younger children, right. uh, siblings, you know, children at school, you know, children they say they date and et cetera. And when asked around the concept of consent, they always talk about what they see as the pornographic script. And the biggest um, cause of cases being reported as rape against the boys that were referred to me is oral sex because in the pornographic script, I mean, oral sex is rape. Mr. Ackerman denied that uh, oral sex was sex at all in his court case today. Bill Clinton the same. Bill Clinton the same. (laughs) Funny enough, it's true. Now now that you mention it, it's actually true. So there's this minimization of the fact that there's something sexual because it doesn't affect, you know, the the harm and, and, you know, outward signs of virginity, etc. But the more important thing is that what that script does is it, it looks at oral sex as something quite forceful. There's um, quite deep penetration. Right. As a result, the girl can't speak. She can't pull her head away because the, the boy is holding her head. And, and in his mind, that script is what he saw mm. done in the pornographic script. So it is the script that he plays out. Right. So even that as a concept, it's not just a desensitization. It's the active provision of a distorted script, which contains nothing about consent, contraception, uh, people as other people, as opposed to things. To, all it really presents people as these things you consume sexually. Right. So, I mean, this is the issue of, 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 of a distorted normality, really. I mean, you're, you're getting this presented almost like a normalization. This is just how it is, because that's what I've seen. And so this is what I do. Edit. Would you? If I may come in here, one yeah. of the examples that's coming to mind is that Teen Vogue um, posted um, an article some time ago for female children on how to stretch their anuses in order to um, allow anal sex for their boyfriends. And it was just one of those moments where you kind of like, am I, am I seeing correctly? Is, mm. is this, abs- you know, is this, what a magazine is, you know, an above board magazine is putting out there to our young people. 
And that, you know, this is seen as, again, normal. It's okay. It's, it's not inappropriate. So I think what's really troubling to me as we're having this conversation, and it's kind of occurring to me, is that we're really looking at societal values and the culture. And we are linking it directly, to some extent, with sexual abuse. And now we're moving into this whole issue of where does it all come from, which is something I was going to discuss a little bit later, and I think I'll still get there. But just in terms of the discussion we're having now, to actually start putting all of this conversation on the table where you're saying, oh, hang on a sec. These things are all interlinked. And I think that sometimes one doesn't make the linkages Everything is kind of siloed. Well, there's pornography. It's technically adult pleasure. Now we're saying, hang on a sec. Let's go back. And we're bringing it. And, and that's why I think those were the two items that I took off the Jelly Beans homepage, which is the extent of sexual abuse and the extent of exposure to pornography. Because I think that in terms of this discussion, there's actually a link, a very direct link. And interestingly, if you look at the Ackerman judgment today, right. okay, so obviously this podcast is going out a bit later, but you can go and look at the judgment. What is extraordinary, and, and I, I mean, I'm finding it very difficult, is that the, the law, the judgments, the media, et cetera, keep using the term child pornography. Right. Now, there, there can be no such word. They are images of the sexual abuse and assault of children. That's right. what they are images of, right. because there's almost the softening. So when you look at when you look at the denials of offenders, I mean, I mean, at one point, Mr. Eckerman's denials were so bad, I think he thought that they were a river in Africa. But I mean, that's another story. <laughs> but he denied he did anything wrong. He denied it. He denied that there was an impact. So he denied the impact. He denied responsibility because the boys were involved, etc. Now, the minute you add the word child and pornography together. There's, there, there is a dissonance in my mind because those are not supposed to be erotic things. They yes. are, we are supposed to say you are looking at a child being abused. You are looking at a crime scene. You should be thinking of it as an erotic thing. So even the law creates these, these dissonances right. in the minds of people. I think that's a very interesting point. But I think that in talking about pornography, I think we must distinguish pornography from erotica. Because I think there is a distinction there. Erotica is, is, is much more about sexuality. Pornography almost seems about pure domination. There's a violent aspect to it. There's a lack of consent or it's almost lack of consent is almost consent forceful. So I think there's a, we have to make I, a distinction. I think maybe one, yeah, one does need to look at the, the, the layering and the various different genres yes. of pornography. You know, we have children who are particularly attracted to one type of genre of pornography versus another. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I think one does need to, to look at it, you know, that there's, there's so many various different facets. Yes. And some of them may be more on the side of, if we can use the word, well, you know, continuum erotica. Whereas on the other side, you know, it is pure abuse and domination right. and abuse on every single level. And I think that's, you know, I'm not speaking as an expert on pornography, but I think that in terms of this discussion, as I'm understanding it and, 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 and in my reading and understanding of pornography, I'm, I'm beginning to see what you're saying, Luke, where you say, don't put child and pornography together. Mm. It, it, it should not be. It's, it's one thing. If, if there are children involved, it's sexual abuse. Correct. End of story. Don't soften it with the term pornography, which I think is interesting. I've never thought about it like that. And the other thing you must think of is, you know, that 
permissive parenting. Now, I'm not, I'm not for a second saying every parent whose child has used pornography knows. Yes. But there's a level of permissiveness around phones that drives me mental with parents. Right. Because, you know, the, 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 the idea that, that a child's privacy trumps their protection is ludicrous. Because the, we, our main job is to protect you. Are they going to be exposed? Like early in the interview, I said they are going to be exposed because the advent of cell phones makes it's pornography there. inevitable, not yeah. accessible. Mm. But we need to be providing them with an alternative script that when they are presented with that script, they have another script to choose from. Mm. And for me, sex is a wonderful thing. It, it should be celebrated. It is one of the great gifts of humanity. It is, mm. it, it's an expression of love. It's part of how we have children. It's mm. part of how we connect. It's, it's, it's an extraordinarily beautiful thing. Yes. And what we don't want to do is sully everything. Yes. And this is not about being the, moralistic. Not at all. This is just putting it as we should understand it. Absolutely. And and the thing for me is that, you know, if if we go to the sort of, you know, almost the, the extreme and ah oh, it's all bad and we go back to in fact this is why that section in the Sexual Offences Act, you know, children between twelve and fifteen who both consent mustn't be criminalized. They said we can't go around now legislating morality again. Mm. You know, because we come from a world of the sure. immorality act. We can't we can't start legislating it starts in your home. Yes. And when you became a parent, you didn't join the EFC, you can't tap out. And that little thing that says PG on everything means parental guidance, not parent gone. Right. <laughs> exactly. No, no, I think that that's that's very profound. Actually, so I just want to come back to the Optimus study and just shift the conversation slightly because what I found really interesting in that particular study was that depending on whether it was an interviewer interviewing the respondent or if it was the questionnaire, you got different rates of reporting of sexual abuse. So I think one also has to look at how studies are conducted in order to interpret the the prevalence figure. But what I can say is that certainly South African rates are higher than the global average. The global average is coming in at about 9.6%. I've seen that as, 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 as quoted data, but there are apparently those that are worse and higher, including Australia, by the way, and other African countries. So, you know, one is just putting it in perspective. This whole issue of, of, of sexual abuse, I think that the Ackerman case puts boys on the stage. I think that predominantly one assumes girls, but I think that when you start to look at the gender proportion, it seems to me that it's both boys and girls, but the nature of the sexual abuse can vary. From what I've seen and read, it's more about girls, it's more penetrative, boys, it's more exposure to sexual acts. What would your comments be there, Luke, and then edit? Look, firstly, there's another variable that, that we need to consider that I see a lot, and that, that is level of income. So what is quite interesting is in terms of the sort of the lower LSMs, we see, well, the, the abuse I see certainly in Johannesburg, the, it, there's a lot more violence attached to it. Okay. So in other words, it's, it's crueler. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the, in the context of the higher echelons, the numbers are extraordinarily high. Like if you take Ackerman, 740. Because that level of privilege gives them access not only to the children, but to the silence that is the power behind abuse. Yes. So in, in sort of in a comment on your, your question around, around gender is that the, 
the the issues for male survivors, and I, I don't want to say it's worse for boys and girls because it's not, it's just different, is they have to deal with issues of homophobia. Mm. Cowboys don't cry. Why did people choose, why did they choose me, not somebody else? Why didn't I fight back if I tell people are going to think I'm gay? There, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stigma right. still within it. And I see that profoundly in the cases where we have issues in boys schools, right. hostels, Water polo teams, the cases I've dealt in, they, they, they ignore the sexual part of it because of the rampant homophobia. Right. You can beat them, make them, make the children run around in the naked in minus four degree temperature. And it's like masculinity is performative. You know, I need to endure this in order to enter masculinity. Right. The minute you mention something sexual, they're all close ranks because of the rampant homophobia in the hyper masculine environment. Right. Edit. I think that, you know, there is this perception when we talk about sexual abuse that it is about girls. And I'm really glad that people are beginning to open up the conversation around boys being just as vulnerable as girls. And that we need to think about our reporting systems and our support systems and our intervention systems, which tend to be more geared towards girls than to boys. And this is really important, is that we need to have a system that says, you know, all children need to be protected. It doesn't matter whether you're a boy, whether you're a girl, it doesn't matter. And, you know, it, it, it's it's just, I, I do think in some ways it is more complex for boys to report. Yes. And I think also the response then from the community mm. and also the professional community mm is not necessarily always as sensitive and as kind yes. as what it may be towards well, a girl. I suppose there's certain stereotypes because that's what we're really dealing with. But the one thing I did want to just bring in, and this is uh, uh, South African data, where it's been stated that approximately 90% of South African children do not report incidents of sexual abuse. Mm. So I think mm-hmm. there is a significant mm. under-reporting of, of sexual abuse. And so what I wanted to lead into was the obligation to report mm. in terms of the Sexual Offences Act and in terms of the Children's, Children's Act. Act. So, Luke, your thoughts on that? All right, so just a brief comment on what Edith was saying around the system and, and reporting is that the other thing about the the system is is it's quite maternal. So we've maternalized care largely. That's not saying it's wrong. No, no, no. It's just lopsided. Right. So that, that idea of there being almost that paternal function that boys can come to, you know, is – is almost absent. You know, the, the paternal function ends up almost being the criminal justice system with the police and, you know, right. all that hardcore okay. stuff. They, they, there's a sense that, you know, the paternal function is an extremely important function, but men are very reluctant to take that up. And as a result, largely who's available for boys to disclose to his woman. Right. And then when the offender against the boy is a female, the whole dynamic changes again, as we saw in the bishop's case, where they charged the boy and saying he was releasing mm-hmm. pornography without her consent. But meanwhile, she's a coach and a teacher having sex with a, a schoolboy. With the age differential. With the, uh, and, and, and a total, and, and not only the age differential in terms of consent, but in terms of the fact that coaches and teachers and people in positions of power on in their code of ethics, their code of employment, they know it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And how do we know they know it's wrong? Well, because they keep it a secret. Now, the mandatory reporting clause was there specifically to deal with that. Right. 
So Section 54 of the Sexual Offences Act says anybody who knows a child is being abused must report it immediately to the police in the form of a statement. And if you are the first report witness, you need to be very, you need to report what the child says. You need to use the same language. And essentially what you're doing is you're opening an investigation into what the child told you as the first report. Because people get very nervous. Oh, I'm going to be charged with defamation and they're going to come after me and whatever. But the truth is the law protects you for that as well. Because what it says is that if you do this in good faith in accordance with the law, you cannot be sued. And there was a the High Court judgment or Supreme Court judgment at the end of last year that actually upheld that because someone tested it. I can't remember the actual citation. So what you're talking about is actually… A breach of confidentiality. Yes. Technically. Technically. So what we do with our clients is we say to them there is limits to confidentiality. The only true confidentiality is between lawyers and their clients in this country. Mm. So every other confidentiality is balanced against the best interest of children. And the limit to confidentiality, we always contract with our clients up front. So the very first thing I say to children and their parents or children without their parents when they come to see me is if you tell me certain kinds of things, I might need to tell other people to get you help. I'm going to tell you I'm going to tell other people and we can work out how we do it, you know, what we tell them, etc. But not that we do it. So that when they choose to tell me it's called a purposeful disclosure, they've made the disclosure for a purpose, they're knowing I'm going to try and get help, right. not an accidental disclosure. For example, a medical doctor who sees Are these child. people who would come to see you specifically because there's a suspicion of sexual abuse? Because I'm not th- at all. Okay. Because I'm talking about just the general sort of clinical setting where this could suddenly come up in conversation. It is something that comes up all the time. I have psychiatric clinics phoning me. I have state psychiatric, private psychiatric clinics. I have psychologists, doctors phoning me and saying this came up in the context of, for example, an accidental disclosure in a doctor's room. Child's got a urinary tract infection. Uh, The doctor does an examination, sees a a torn hymen. The child has said nothing, has never mentioned, but now we can see something's happened. Now we've got to start asking questions. And the child's not ready to talk. And then secondly, we've got Section 110 of the Children's Act, which mandates slightly more than sexual abuse. It also mandates physical uh, physical assault, which has actually become quite complex because of the non-defensible nature of corporal punishment. And then also deliberate neglect must be reported. So it's sexual abuse, physical abuse, and deliberate neglect in terms of Section 110 of the Children's Act. And that applies specifically to a list of professionals, whereas the Sexual Offences Act and Sexual Offences Against Children and People with Cognitive Impairment is everybody and immediately. Right. Edith, your thoughts? My thoughts. I think if I think about disclosures Mm. and reporting of disclosures, unfortunately there are too few professionals and also people in the community who are standing up and doing the right thing and protecting children. I do think one of the reasons is that people are afraid in some of the communities. They are threatened. Um, you know, they, they're afraid for themselves. They're afraid for their children. Um, and and it, it, it puts them in a really difficult situation where they know what's the right thing to do, but at the same thing, you also want to protect your family. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, saying we need, to do, we need to report, and that is absolutely the case. We have to. That's the law. Isn't as easy always, uh, you know, to to implement. No, no, particularly in some communities, because there are consequences. Mm-hmm. And essentially, what you're doing is you're opening up a Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. And I think what it comes 
back to is, is something that I wanted to raise next, which is the setting of sexual abuse, be it domestic, be it institutional, because there are different settings, you know, uh, involving parents, step-parents, siblings. And one of the issues for me which has come up is the issue of parental silence and collusion to some extent. I'm not sure what your experience, aside from child silence, which we've touched on obviously, which means that offenders largely go undetected. But this whole issue of, 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 of parental silence and almost collusion, often within the context of a, of a, of a step parent who might be molesting the child, the index parent is saying nothing. It's carrying on. I don't know what your experience has been of that. So I'm, I'm just looking at the, the settings in which sexual abuse takes place. Luke and then edit or edit and then Luke. The cases I see, less than 1% of those cases involve some kind of forceful abduction, kidnapping, what, whatever you want to call it, hostage holding, etc. So that's well in excess of 99 point whatever percent are within the context of people who are supposed to care for children. So it's familiar. People are familiar with each other. Totally, because yeah. grooming is reliant entirely on the fact that you have groomed the people who are there to care for the child, the parents or the people who employ you, the, you know, the school or whatever. And then it's entirely reliant on the fact that you maintain silence. So the, the entire grooming proce- process is set up to do that. And the institution, so I mean, there's various institutions, institution of family, institution of school, institution of hostel, etc. The, the biggest challenge that we have is that somewhere there is an underlying almost defense the same way the, the abusers defend themselves. Now it's impossible. He's such a nice guy. Like, I mean, if you read the St. Andrew's, um, finding in the report that was, um, written after that young man took his own life. Mm. You know, that report clearly, the principal was saying, who lost his job, by the way, was clearly, I can't believe this boy, you know, this, um, Educated did this to this child. I mean, he's such a nice guy, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had a couple of beers with him and like Saint Andrews know. or Saint John's. Saint Andrews. Saint Andrews. Okay. Okay. So the Saint John's case is pending. The Saint Andrews case is so. The, there's a Saint John's case, a Saint Andrews case, a Parktown case. You know. So I mean, that that just tells you the litany of that kind of institutional abuse. Now you must understand that system. Okay. Families are set up to what happens in our house days. In our house, it's generally set up. Just to be clear, yeah. these are public domain. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm not opening a can no, no, of no, worms no. where the schools might say no, we are no, unduly no. prejudicing. No, these no, are public not, domain issues. Not, not and I think all. what we're showing is how pervasive and the, oh, well, that's, the reality of these incidences across the board. And not only pervasive, they are in places charged with the care of children. Right. From families to child and youth care centers, to hostels, to schools, you, you pick an institution. And that's where career offenders live because they choose jobs that give them access to children and they make a career of abusing children. Right. Some of whom abuse between three and four hundred children based on the research of the late eighties and early nineties. But the point I'm trying to make around secrecy is secrecy is the power of abuse. Right. We set up our families. For example, we tell children you must say no if someone tries to harm you. But then we drag our lovely little toddler off to our mother-in-law who wants to kiss our child hello. Child looks at granny and says, no, I'm not so keen on that. She's like a bit odd looking. And what happens is you better kiss your granny because, you know, I've already taken her son out the house and she thinks I'm not a good enough wife. Now she's going to think I'm a bad mother because, you know, I've raised a disrespectful child. And in context where children 
are allowed to practice safe saying no to adults. They don't even get a chance to practice that. Their no is overread, and that results in shame, guilt, etc., which maintains the secrets. But things like schools, yeah. and particularly the ones I've worked in, the entire system is set up for secrecy. Um, what happens in the Parktown case, which there's a book about, it's very much in the public domain. What happens at Parktown stays at Parktown. This is the Parktown way, etc., uh, etc. Et so when you get to it, you get you come here, you're part of this elite group. To be part of this elite group, there's performative stuff that must happen. The performative stuff needs to be kept secret because this is how we become a brotherhood. Once we do that, we get access to the right teams, access to the right universities, access to the right privilege, access to the right secret societies like the Freemasons, and then we get access to privilege and jobs that. And the whole thing is structured on it. Mm. And to break that down is unbelievably difficult. Yes. Well, it's generational. I mean, it's, it's, it, it and institutional. Just yes. Absolutely. So, I wonder if I yes. could come in here just Do. in terms of what Luke was sharing and I support 100% what he was sharing. What we are seeing on, on our side in, in Cape Town is that in the more, um, um, poorer communities and often the more, the communities where there is a lot of violence, we do see a lot of abuse, sexual abuse, um, rape of children by people who are not known to children. Okay. So I am absolutely convinced that there is the, the um, groomed known offender yeah. who is abusing children in these communities. But often the reported cases are more about the unknown offender mm. um you know it, or it might be somebody in the community but it's not somebody who has groomed the child fair enough fair enough um, and i think you know, we, it, we do read about those cases where there is a serial mm. predator on the loose and so the whole community is now under threat and everybody's kids are potentially at risk so i think that's and and that is sometimes very much the case but it is true what Luke was saying that the bigger threat yes. is in places where caregiving is the responsibility of the adults. And, you know, that that's where most of the abuse does take place. And I agree completely with Eric because what I said earlier was that the levels of violence are much higher in those things because the children don't want to go with them. Right. And then they go missing. They go straight home and tell the parents, this ugly man did this mm. to me. So we get to find out about it immediately. We get services. We Obviously, we, we often don't find the offender because right. these communities are so complex. But the secrecy is not the same. The mm. secrecy is bound in institutional relational structures yes. and extremely damaging. So obviously there are issues around risk and risk factors, and I'm sort of mindful of, of, of our time. So obviously gender, age, relationships all come into it, and there seem to be a whole host of family factors where, for example, there is reduced parental supervision, They've cited absence of father as a role model, marital conflict, presence of a stepfather, emotionally unavailable mother, single parents, parental substance abuse, parental mental health issues, and parents who themselves have been abused, so generational cycles of abuse. So I think there are a whole host of risk factors, and just because you might uh, meet or tick box one of these particular factors doesn't mean that you are directly at risk because I think it's much more complex than that. So I wanted to, so I just thought I'd mention that without going into it because there's something very specific which, which happens in divorce situations 
where there is false accusations of sexual abuse. And I don't know to what extent the teddy bear clinic has been involved in that kind of work, but I've certainly come across it. And that can be hugely damaging for both the child and the parent who is falsely accused. Luke, your experience on that and, and, and edit? Right, so the first thing, I just want to briefly touch on the risk factors. Risk factors yes. To say one thing about that, I have an inherent problem with it. Okay. Because the first problem They're is not the, mine, by the way. No, no, I've, no, I've I, no. I know where that comes from. I've trained this. I've, I've said what, what you have said to me back to other people. <laughs> right. While there's truth in it, my problem is it always has to be done with the proviso that we don't create parent blaming. Yes. You know, fair you enough. know, moms who are single moms and vulnerable yes, families, correct. et cetera. Yeah. We have to firmly place the blame at the people who like to have sex with children. Yes. And we have to say their motive is to sexually abuse children and they exploit any kind of vulnerability. Absolutely. Including elitism. Right. So for example, coaches often exploit very children who want access to elite sports. We've got fantastic families. Right. You know, so we, we've got to be careful that the, the old saying is Aramis ni fail ni. So we can't always reduce these things to vulnerable people. Everybody's at risk here. Yes. So that's the one yeah. bottom line thing I want to say. In terms of the experience, I have had it. So let me tell you this. In my, in my history, in my 31 year history of working with child abuse, I've probably, if I think hard, I've had five false allegations that I can think of. Right. I can literally count them on one hand. Okay. And it always involved another adult influencing the child to say something around abuse, either directly or indirectly. Yes. So certainly within the context of divorce, there's actually a syndrome, sexual abuse allegations in divorce syndrome. But I had another very interesting one just as a, as an aside where it's not always about these high conflict things. I had a mom who had suffered terrible sexual abuse. I mean, she had been abused by her brother, her uncle for like her entire life. She then got married, had a child, her marriage failed. And she was busy writing a book on her survivor, her survivor status, you know, yes. that victim survivor thrive yes. organizer thing. And she was writing a book, which she was sharing with her newly pubescent child. And her child very, very directly became part of that narrative because she felt she couldn't connect to her mother other than if it had have happened to her. Uh-huh. And she made the most bizarre disclosure of being abused in a hospital. That had a bumper bashing of being abused in a hospital. They put her in the anesthetic room, turned her upside down. People put on masks like satanic ritual abuse and came and abused her. And we were frantic. I mean, I was with the police and the health people and we were running around trying to find cameras and that. And what she had done in the end is she had said, I need to connect with my mom and the way to do it is through my victimhood. So it's not only, you know, these divorce cases where you put in one parent against another. There, there are other reasons for it, but they are always, always extremely complex and always, in my experience, promoted by another adult. Absolutely. And in fact, in that particular case you were just mentioning now, the issue of the emotionally unavailable mother is quite an interesting one because that almost comes in. But again, just to qualify, just because I've listed all of these potential risk factors and you might be able to tick one of them as being you, it doesn't mean that you are it and it's going to happen in your home. Edit. Luke mentioned that, um, you know, although there is a lot of talk about you know, there are concerns about children um, making false allegations. I I would agree that I don't see it as rampant as what it is spoken about. 
because it, it, it definitely does happen in some cases. I don't dispute that. However, in my experience, it doesn't happen as much mm. as what the, the conversation is or potentially the person who's being accused would like you to believe. Fair enough. So I think I'm looking at a specific instance, and I think in that instance, within that context, one might keep that in mind, but it's not to say that that's likely to be the case. You must remember a lot of what we do is about differentials. Right. How can we explain things in terms of differential diagnoses? I mean, I've had children who are rampantly sort of prodromally psychotic yes. and saying extremely odd things. Right. But then I have to understand the child's mental state on top of, of course. the disclosure. But then I have to look back and say, why is the child in that mental state right. to begin with? So it, you must remember that a lot of these things are like an archaeological dig. You're going yes. in with a feather to – you know, dig for the bones. You're looking with a jackhammer. Right. Well, again, I think we're coming back to context. And one has to really look at that carefully. Listen, we're coming to the end of our time. Boy, there were a lot of things I didn't discuss. I wanted to know about the assessment process. I wanted to know about the intervention. I wanted to know about outcomes. So these are all things. And just looking at the legal process. I'm going to leave you with one question, though, because we've all been speaking about the victim. What about the perpetrator? Where do they come into this equation? I'm not sure we have time for it. Have you got a one-liner? Yeah, I do. All right. Not every offender is the same. You, Much like we treat victims differently, so do offenders. We need to think about their age, their context. And we do have offenders that I've seen who we consider regress. They do it once. They are very remorseful. They come, please help me. I need to sort myself out. We have offenders who have never abused a child but have fantasized about it and right. are deeply distressed because they know what's wrong and they need help. And then you have purely psychopathic people like right. a Mr. Ackerman. So they're also not the same. And I think we need nuance in that as well. Fair enough. Edit? Yeah. Offenders are not the creepy people who live in the park with, you know, the hoodies and the big jackets. Yes. Offenders are people like you and me. And they look like you and me. But I think what we also do need to take into account if, if we look from the offender perspective is that their offending behavior right. has an origin as well. Yes. Not always sexual abuse, which is kind of the, the norm that is thought, but we do also need to look at how do we help offenders from stopping offending. And in terms of resources and lack of resources, there is one big hole over there. So just to put a point to that, the whole issue from victimization to perpetration. And I think so the, the, the intervening step is at victimization to make sure we don't get to perpetration. So just to say something about that, this, the, the International Male Survivors Association, right. Sexual Abuse Survivors Association, has issued a, a very good paper to show that what we call the vampire myth is not true. Where the vampire myth, say in other words, if you get sexually abused, you will abuse me. Right. The vampire myth originated largely from the testimonies of convicted offenders who used it in mitigation of sentencing. Right. And it is, in fact, not the major cause. Yes. And, in fact, the majority of male survivors of sexual abuse do not abuse. And certainly the majority of female sexual abuse of, uh, survivors do not abuse. Very important. Edith and Luke? I want to thank you for sharing of your time Thanks and expertise. Time. And sorry we didn't get to your questions. No, no, but maybe we'll do another episode. <laughs> but I think this is a particularly sensitive subject. And so what I would close in saying is there's an increasing evidence 
that uh, adverse childhood experiences are closely related to enduring brain dysfunctions that impact both physical and mental health negatively across the lifespan. So awareness, recognition, and timeless intervention may forestall the progression to such outcomes, which we didn't get a chance to discuss. And certainly the science is emerging, and hopefully with it, societal awareness, reflection, and action. So in closing, a few words from Nelson Mandela. There can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. This has been Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Remember, there is no health without mental health, and until next time, take care.